Amen. <clears throat> so last time we were together, we, which was over maybe two, three weeks ago, we were looking at um, the, we started the work of Christ. So we finished the person of Christ. And what we did there was simply talk about um, the ontological Christ, who Christ is in his being, right? We didn't speak about his work. We didn't speak about the atonement. Uh, we didn't speak about him obeying the law or anything like that, really. We spoke about who he is in his being. He is one person with two natures. He is a divine person who has added to himself a true human nature. And uh, saints, you might see me do this a lot because I'm running a, a little cough, but um, just bear with me. Um, so he is a divine person who has added to himself a true human nature. He's truly God and truly man. And then, so we talked about the, the, the being of Christ and, and all that. <clears throat> and then we moved on into the work of Christ, which we are in now. And when we speak about the work of Christ, what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about all the things that Jesus Christ did in order for us to have peace with God. Simply put, when we speak about the work of Christ, we're speaking about all the things that Jesus Christ did in his life in order for us to have peace with God, in order, in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to have salvation, right? And a lot of times when we think about Jesus Christ, uh, we jump straight into what he does rather than who he is. And that's why I thought it was important for us to understand who he is before we rec- uh, consider what he has done, because uh, in order for us to have a proper understanding of what he has done, we have to have an understanding of who he is. We've noticed that, and we've seen that, if you remember uh, last Sunday morning when I preached on Zechariah chapter 13, where we have, when we considered uh, the being of Jesus Christ, that he's truly God and truly man, right? Um, in order for Jesus Christ to pay the infinite punishment of sin, he had to be truly God. Right, he ha- in order for him to, in order us uh, and our sins um, to be washed away forever, not just for a year, for a summer, not for just a couple of months, uh, but for all eternity, our Messiah, the Shepherd, had to be a divine person, right? So that's why, and I hope you saw that in uh, last Sunday morning. That it's important for us, even though it's, as I know it's hard to understand and grasp that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. It's essential for us to know because we want to know how are we saved? You know, are we truly saved? Can we truly put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And yes, we can because he is a divine person who has added to himself a true human nature. And what we saw the last time we were together in our Christology series is what we call the covenant of redemption. And what the covenant of redemption simply is, if you remember, it's that agreement between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, where the Son and the Father are the primary parties in this covenant. The Father gives to the Son a work to do. You must do this. And the son willingly and voluntarily takes on that work. If you remember, right? The father gives the son a work. You must do this. The son says, yes, I will do that. He takes on that work. And the spirit will be given to the son, according to his human nature, in order for the son to complete the father's work. Okay, it's pretty simple. 
And when we looked at the covenant of redemption, we looked at what were those things, those commands, obligations that the father gave to the son in order for us to be saved. Okay, this all somehow, some way, this is going to come back to our salvation. Okay, so in order for us to be saved, what did the son have to do? And what we saw is the son must become a federal head. He must be a federal head for his people. Right. A federal head. Just like Adam was a federal head. He represented us. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Jesus Christ is our federal head. He's the federal head of a new and better covenant. Right. Of the elect. He represents his people. Right. So as Christ lives, we live. When Christ dies, we die. Right. Um, the next work that the, the father gave to the son is he must become incarnate. Right. The eternal son, um, the second person of the Trinity must become incarnate. He must take on flesh. Now, when we say take on flesh, that doesn't simply mean that he assumes a body. But he assumes all of what it means to be human. He assumes a body. He, he assumes a human mind, a human heart, a human will, human emotions, affections. He was truly human while not ceasing to be what he truly was, God. He's truly God and truly man. That was the second work. The third work we saw is he must be born under the law and live perfectly to the law. That was one of the requirements. In order for us to be saved, we needed one who could do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to live perfectly to God's law. Live perfectly to the law of God. And what does Christ do? He does exactly what we needed, and that is we needed uh, to be freed from under the curse of the law. Christ frees us from under the curse of the law. Therefore, now we can obey the law freely. The law to us is now a delight. And in a few weeks, we will talk about uh, how Christ fulfills and obeys the law. And then lastly, Christ must suffer and bear the sins of his people. Okay, he must suffer and bear the sins of his people. Um, he must, in order for us to have um, the the sin, guilt, uh, and, and, and all that removed from us, one must come in our place to suffer. And I thought, and I think that's why uh, last uh, Sunday morning ser- sermon was of importance, because we could not suffer for our sins, even if you wanted to. Amen, please. <laughs> None of you could bear the weight of God's divine judgment. None of you. You would be crushed. You would fall under the wrath of God. That is why our mediator needed to be uh, truly God in order for uh, in order for Him to sustain the full blow of divine justice. Okay, so praise God that Christ was truly God and truly man. Now, we want to go a little bit deeper into the work of Christ, and this morning or this evening, um, I want to look at two aspects of uh, the work of Christ. And number one, we want to look at why do we call Jesus, Jesus? Why do we call him Jesus? That's point number one. Why do we call him Jesus? Okay. <clears throat> and then number two, point two, we want to look at the early life of Jesus. Okay. So why do we call him Jesus? And we want to look at the early life of Jesus. Okay. 
And I think these two aspects um, of the work of Christ are important for us to understand the entirety of the work of Christ. Understanding why he is named Jesus will understand who he is and his work and his mission. In understanding the early life of Jesus, we get a better glimpse of he had of 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 Jesus uh, didn't necessarily come to this realization at age thirty that he was the Messiah, but he knew, and you'll see, he knew very early in his life that he was sent by his father to do a specific task and die for a specific people. Okay, but that knowledge was not uh, inherent in him, and we'll we'll get to that. But let's look at the first point, and that is why do we call him Jesus? Why do we call him Jesus? Okay, why do we call Jesus Jesus? Have any of you ever asked yourself that question? It's pretty simple, um, but why? Why do we call him Jesus? Question twenty nine of an Orthodox Catechism says this: Question. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Why? Answer, because he saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. Why do we call him Jesus? Because he saves us from our sins. That is why he is named Jesus. And this is exactly what the angel told Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Look at verse 21, if you would, in Matthew chapter 1. You're already there. Um, the angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She will bear a son. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the common question might be, but why Jesus, Jesus? Why, why do we, why did the angel pick the name Jesus? Mind you, it wasn't the angel that picked the name Jesus. There's a, there's a, there, there's an origin to the name Jesus that goes farther back than the angels. So why Jesus? Why not, you know, Joe or Anthony or Mark or Joseph? Why was this name given to the eternal son. Why couldn't Jesus be named Isaiah or Nazareth or anyone like that? In fact, before the birth of Jesus, the name Jesus wasn't an unusual name at all. It wasn't uncommon to walk along the streets in Jerusalem, Nazareth, wherever, and hear someone say, hi, my name is Jesus. In fact, the, uh, uh, first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus mentions at least 12 different people he knew with the name Jesus, including two, four, uh, uh, including four high priests. So Josephus, this, this first century Jewish historian, if you want to look at, if you want to get into um, the, the history of Christianity and the reliability of, of uh, the resurrection and the death of Christ and all that, uh, look at the works of Josephus. But Josephus says, I knew about 12 people that were named Jesus. And four of them were high priests. In Acts 9, we read of a Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus. In Colossians 4, Paul mentions one of his fellow workers, Jesus. 
And some ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew refer to the robber released by Pilate as Jesus Barabbas, which can be translated, ironically enough, Jesus, son of the father. So Jesus wasn't an unusual name. It was a common name like Jim, Ben, Joe, Jerry. Those are common names that we hear. So Jesus falls into that category in that time. So why the name Jesus? We come back to the question. Well, in order for us to answer the why, why Jesus, we have to understand that in that time period, in Old Testament time period, New Testament time period, names carried much significance. Names actually meant something. Parents would name their child based off of uh, certain expectations that they had of their children. One example of this is seen in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Lamech has a son and he names him Noah. What was the reason why Lamech named his son Noah? We read, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Lamech believes that Noah is the one that will bring them rest, right? Lamech believes that this is the one that was going to relieve us, all of our painful toil. Um, We learned this morning that one of Lot's daughters named her son Moab. What does that mean? Which means from father, right? If you remember this morning's sermon, I hope you do. Um, what this, what this means is in these times, name said something about the person. It spoke about who the person is, where the person is from, sometimes how this person came about. And what this person will do. There is much significance to a name. Now, we do something like that in our time uh, now, do we not? Uh, we name our children based off of certain individuals, maybe certain expectations that we have of them. I remember when me and my wife uh, were expecting, or when she was expecting and I was helping her, <laughs> uh, trying to uh, relieve her, her pain and all that. It seemed like every night we were going over which name to name our son. And what do we always do? We always try to find the unique name, but also what the definition of the name is, right? Um, So we landed on Isaiah, named after me, and we landed uh, on Owen, named after John Owen. So you all have done that as well. You all have picked names for your children that signify something, right? That speak of who they are, uh, what you think they will do, or just some cool definition that the name brings. The name Jesus says something about who he is. The name Jesus says something about who he is, but also what he will do. Who he is and what he will do. Jesus is named Jesus because simply he is the Savior. He is the Savior. And if we break down the name Jesus, you'll see that his name has great Old Testament significance, that his name carries much weight. Yeshua, which is Jesus's name in Hebrew, is shorthand form for Joshua. And if we consider what Joshua means, it means Yahweh is salvation. 
So I want, if you're, if you're tracking with me, Jesus is the Hebrew shorthand for Joshua. So there is a link between Joshua and Jesus as far as names go. But if we look a little bit further into the life of Joshua, there's much more significance and connection than just names. There's a reason why Jesus is named Jesus. By this, we can say Jesus' name ties him to one of the great figures in redemptive history, a man used by God to save his people and bring them into the promised land. Joshua is one of Israel's greatest heroes. If you read the Old Testament, you will know the name Joshua. His first uh, appearance, uh, or he first appears as a skillful commander who directs Israel's armies against a battle against the Amalekites. And Joshua is also identified as Moses' assistant, who when Moses died was the one who would lead the people of Israel into the promised land. In fact, Joshua was one of those uh, 12 spies who, if you remember, uh, 12 spies were sent to go into the land of Canaan to see what, you know, what was going on in the land of Canaan and their armies. And when they come back, two of the 12 spies, or I should say, uh, uh, 10 of the 12 spies were in fear of what they saw. They couldn't believe the size of the Canaanite army. But two, Joshua being one of them, believed God, believed that his God was strong enough to overthrow the Canaanites. So Joshua believed God. He had a strong faith in God. Joshua, in a nutshell, was a great leader of God's people who conquered many enemies while taking God's people into the promised land. If we want to remember anything about Joshua, that's a good summary to remember, that he led God's people by conquering God's enemies, and he took God's people into the promised land. Now, you might ask, what's the connection between Joshua and Jesus? Although Joshua was not a biological ancestor of Jesus, meaning, so when we read the genealogies in the Gospels, right, we never see Joshua's name in that, or in those long uh, genealogies. Joshua's name is never mentioned. However, the connection that we do see between Joshua and Jesus is Joshua, and hear me here, hear me now, prefigures Jesus. Okay? Joshua prefigures Jesus. Now, if you've known anything or if you if you've listened to any of our sermons, you will understand what I mean here. But when we say Joshua prefigures Jesus, what we are simply mean is Joshua is a type of Jesus. Joshua is a type and Jesus is the antitype. Now, a type, if you remember, is a historical place, person, institution or event that was designed by God to point to a future person, place, event, or institution. So a type points forward to something greater than itself. Now, there's similarities, but there's also vast differences. Okay? So Joshua was a type of Christ. Joshua not only led the people of Israel into the promised land, but he also represented the people before God and served them as a minister of Yahweh. He led the people, he represented the people, 
and he served them as a minister. Now, who does that sound like? One theologian has said, although not a king, Joshua functioned as the leader of Israel in a royal capacity. He carried out a number of messianic functions, prefiguring the kingly office of David. Although not a prophet in an official sense, Joshua communicated God's will to the people of Israel. He stood not as a mediator of a covenant, but as a minister of a covenant, of the covenant. And in this sense, reminded Israel of God's word, which had been revealed to them at Mount Sinai. And again, when the covenant was renewed on the plains of Horeb. So we can say, although Joshua didn't officially carry the office of prophet, priest, or king, he, he, he didn't have that office officially. He wasn't anointed to those offices. He prefigured Jesus Christ, who was a prophet, priest, and king. Although he wasn't officially those things, he functioned as those things, as those offices. But I think the greatest connection we've seen between Joshua and Jesus is their ability to lead God's people to salvation. If you want to look at what's, so what's the, just the big connection between Joshua and Jesus? It's their ability to lead God's people to salvation. Now, Joshua led God's people to a certain type of salvation. Joshua didn't lead God's people into the salvation that we know it. Okay. Not from the guilt and power of sin, but what he did do is he led God's people to victory over the Canaanite tribes that blocked Israel's entrance into Canaan, into the promised land. The Canaanites prevented Israel from entering the promised land where they would be saved from their enemies. The promised land's here, but you have this massive army that's blocking Israel's entrance into this promised land. So what does Joshua do? He defeats this Canaanite army, thereby bringing God's people into the promised land, thereby saving God's people from their enemies. When they were in that promised land, God was on their side. God protected them. Joshua defeated God's enemies and thereby saved God's people from their enemies. Now, this salvation prefigures the salvation that we have in Christ, if you haven't noticed. Saints, there is a good reason why the angel commanded Joseph to name his child Jesus, whose name in Hebrew means Joshua. Because although Joshua was a sinful man who himself needed a savior, his role in leading the people of God to victory over the Canaanites prefigured the coming of Christ who led or leads God's people to victory over our greatest enemy, sin and death. So the way God or the way Joshua led Israel, God's people, to battle and overthrew the Canaanite armies is the same way Jesus Christ leads us to this great battle and overcomes our greatest enemy, sin and death. There is a connection between the leadership of Joshua and Jesus and their ability to overthrow God's enemies. But we also see our eternal home prefigured in Joshua as well, do we not? Uh, While Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of uh, uh, Canaan, into the promised land, the greater Joshua, Jesus of Nazareth, leads us into that heavenly city. A pure land of delight where 
There will be no more tears and suffering and where we will dwell with God forever. Canaan prefigured our eternal heavenly home. So when we consider the story of Joshua and Joshua leading God's people into the promised land, that promised land prefigures, it shadows for us the consummation of all things, that heavenly home that is awaiting us. So when we consider Jesus' name, we have to say that it's not by accident or coincidence, but Christ's name, Jesus' name, was divinely ordained by God. Jesus' name was a name that was divinely ordained by God. The name Jesus is fitting for the eternal son, for he is the only one, and hear this, he is the only one in history who actually lived up to his name. We name uh, people or, or we name our kids after many things. And, and even in the Old Testament and New Testament, they were naming their children because they expected great things out of them. But if you consider Jesus and who he is, out of all the people who has ever been named in this world after great things that they will accomplish, Jesus is the only one who lived up to his name. He's the only one in history who lived up to his name. Jesus actually saves his people from their sins. Kevin DeYoung says, and I think this quote is important to remember, especially in our current society that we are living in. More than a great teacher, more than an enlightened man, more than a worker of miracles, more than a source of meaning of life, more than a self-help guru, more than a self-esteem builder, more than a political liberator, more than a caring friend, more than a transformer of cultures, more than a purpose for the purposeless. Jesus is the savior of sinners. More than any of these labels that the world tries to throw on Jesus, first and foremost, he is the savior of sinners. That is why we call him Jesus, because he will lead his people and save his people from their sins. Now, I want to just mention this last, uh, this last part. And that is, well, why Jesus Christ? Why Christ? And I don't want you to think that Christ is his last name. It is, it is not Jesus' first name and Christ's last name. You know, we don't call him Mr. Christ. Christ is a title that is given to Jesus. Again, the Orthodox Catechism says in question 31, why is he called Christ? meaning anointed. So why is Jesus called Christ? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who will continually plead our case with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Why do we call him Christ? Well, uh, we can read those, but also I think it's safe to say in a nutshell, because he is the Messiah. He is the long waited Messiah. He was the one whom the people of Israel look forward to. In fact, if we go further, he's the one whom all the Old Testament saints look forward to. He is that promised seed of Genesis 3.15. And saints, I've been uh, messaging the, the men certain things 
of, you know, if you want to be a master of theology, learn this, learn that. But I would say also, if you want to master theology and have a, and have a master's degree in theology, know this, that Genesis 3.15 is about Jesus Christ. You get that right, you get a lot right. Everything right. You get that wrong, you get everything wrong. Jesus Christ is of the woman. He's of the substance of Mary. He is that promised seed that will crush a serpent's head. And every single type in the Old Testament that we see finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Every historical type that we see, Adam, Noah, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, all of these men, they find their, their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the New Testament, what does John the baptizer say when he sees Jesus? He says, and he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the anointed one. Why is Jesus called Christ? For he is the promised Messiah who will take away the sins of his people. And that's, in a nutshell, why do we call him Jesus Christ? Because he's the promised one. Because he is the one who will take his people and he will lead them to victory. And mind you, he does not battle against sin and death. He defeats it by rising from the dead. So saints, why do we call Jesus uh, Jesus? And why do we call him Christ? Because first, Jesus is the Savior. And second, he is the anointed Messiah. He is the Savior and he is the anointed Messiah. Now let's consider our second and last point, and that is, the early life of Jesus, the early life of Jesus. <clears throat> and if you would, look look at uh, Luke chapter 2. Turn to Luke chapter 2, and you should already be there. Luke chapter 2. Of the four Gospels, um, only Luke tells us about the days between the birth of Jesus and the inauguration of his public ministry when he was 30 years old. We don't, we don't find many things and know many things about the early life of Jesus. But if you would, consider with me Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. Verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was uh, ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Uh, but supposing him to be in the group... They went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, 
Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not uh, understand the saying that he spoke to them. And they went down with them and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These 14 verses are the only things we know about Jesus as he grew in manhood. These are the only things we know about Jesus from birth to his inauguration of his public ministry when he's baptized at age 30. It is that he grew, became, uh, grew, became strong, was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, that he went with his parents to the temple every year at the time of the Passover, and that he was submissive to his parents. That's it. We don't hear about any miracles that he did, that he did as a boy. And I am inclined to believe that he didn't perform any miracles as a boy. Uh, and if you want to debate me after, you can. Uh, we don't hear about his, uh, interaction with his brothers and sisters. Uh, we don't hear about his favorite food that he had as a boy or his favorite game that he liked to play as a boy. We don't hear of who his best friends were or how he spoke to others. Nothing. None of that. The only thing that Luke, by the Holy Spirit, teaches us is that the eternal Son of God, and hear this, the eternal Son of God experienced sinless growth and development as a real human being. It's all we know. It's all we know. Now, the question that might arise, that you might have, is this. Why doesn't the Bible give us more insight into the early life of Jesus? Why? Why doesn't it tell us more about how Jesus was as a boy? Why does the Bible hold back specific details about the childhood of Christ? Why, why did we know about his best friends or his favorite game or how he did, you know, um, as, as a young carpenter learning and things like that? Uh, or, you know, did he cry at night a lot? Those, why, why, didn't, why don't we know those things? Have you ever asked that? And I think the reason... Um, why we don't know those things is because God is not interested in giving us every detail because it would be no use for us. Uh, Pastor Antonio likes to say, uh, you will miss uh, the forest among the trees. If he gives us, that's how he say it. If he gives us those, all of these little details, we're going to miss the big picture of what, of what God is intending to say. Knowing what Jesus' favorite food is would be no use for us to know. Why? I mean, it would be a cool thing, but why? You know, why, why is it useful for us to know who his best friend was? We're never going to meet him. Why is it useful for us to know how he did as a boy? The Bible already tells us to obey our parents, right? So understanding and knowing all of these things that the Bible doesn't tell us, I think will diminish and we would miss the overall story of the Bible, specifically who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. If we got caught up in wanting to know, you know, what his favorite color was and all that. The Bible is a story about the glory of God through the redemptive work of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible is about. That's the story of the Bible, the glory of God through the redemptive work of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. Christ. 
But I also believe the reason why the Bible only gives us a little amount of detail into the early life of Christ is because God is telling us something. There's something that, that God is telling us in these verses. There's a reason why we don't know everything about the early life of Christ. Because God is telling us something. Again, consider with me Luke chapter 2. And I'm, I'm not going to look at all the verses, but look at these verses. Verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 46, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 51, uh, when they, when they found Jesus and they said, we got to go. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In between those verses, imagine the Bible saying, and his favorite color was blue. And also he liked to eat, I don't know, uh, Hebrew spaghetti or something, right? He liked his hamburgers and steak, steak cooked raw or whatever, right? Imagine that in between these verses, it's saying that. We will lose and we, we will not truly understand. And then we would, we would diminish the glory of what verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what are these verses telling us? Two quick things. Jesus was truly human. That's what God's telling us. That's what the Bible's telling us in these verses. Jesus is truly human. Forget his favorite color, best friend, the way he liked his macaroni and cheese, all that, right? Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, was truly human. And these two verses highlight this fact. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and the favor of God was upon him. What do we see here, saints? That Christ grew. Christ developed. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. John Owen says, now in the improvement and exercise of these faculties and powers of his soul, he had and made a progress after the manner of other men. For he was made like unto us in all things yet without sin. Jesus as a boy grew and increased in his knowledge. And when we think of Jesus, we ought to think that he came out the womb knowing everything. Although he did, he was truly God. He was a second person of the Trinity, right? But according to his human nature, he didn't come out the womb knowing everything as human. He was a baby. In fact, we can say he didn't know anything when he was a baby. What did he know? But as John Owen said, he made a progress after the manner of men. He progressed as we progressed. The eternal son of God progressed according to his human nature. Christ as a boy learned just as we had to learn. He learned obedience. Jesus Christ learned the Old Testament. He learned how to treat others. But the difference between Jesus' learning and our learning is as Jesus grew in wisdom, more grace was being poured upon his soul. 
meaning Jesus grew in wisdom. As, as he increased in his knowledge, he increased in his ability to skillfully use the knowledge that he obtained. He mastered the knowledge that he was obtaining as a child. Jesus grew as a boy grew in wisdom. And one of the implications of this, and we've already said this before, but one of the implications of Jesus as a boy growing in wisdom is that he learned about himself by reading the Old Testament. Jesus learned about who he is by reading the Old Testament. I've quoted this before, but I think it's a great quote. Mark Jones has said, Jesus came to a growing understanding of his messianic calling by reading the scriptures. He had to learn the Bible just as we must. Of course, he was the greatest theologian who has ever lived. His reading of the Bible had, would have been free from the problems that beset Christians who wrongly interpret passages and bring their own sinful dispositions to the text. Nevertheless, we must not imagine that Christ had all the answers as a baby and merely waited to begin his ministry at age 30 without putting in hard yet delightful work on a daily basis in obedience to his father's will. We're not to think that he came out the baby knowing that he's the Messiah. And then at age 30, okay, I got to go. We don't have to think that at all. As Christopher Wright notes, the Old Testament enabled Jesus to understand himself. Think about that. And then he says this. This is one of my, one of my favorite quotes. The Hebrew scriptures in which he found a rich tapestry of figures, historical persons, prophetic pictures, and symbols of worship. And in this tapestry, where others saw only a fragmented collection of various figures and hopes, hear this, Jesus saw his own face. So when people are reading the Old Testament, they're reading and they're seeing all these figures, right? And they're seeing all these events that happen. Jesus is reading the Old Testament. He's seeing himself. He's seeing himself. He had to study. Um, the, uh, this Hebrew Bible provided the shape of his own identity. Now, hear me when I say this. I don't think it's proper to say that Jesus as a boy somehow lacked human consciousness that he was the eternal son of God. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that as a boy, he did not know that he was God. Let me give you an example of the reason why I say that. Remember back in Luke uh, 2, 49, look at your Bibles. And he said to them, Jesus said to his parents after they found him in the temple, what does he say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? His father is Joseph, Right? But he's not appealing to Joseph here. He's appealing to his father, who was his God. At age 12, Jesus was aware of who he was. He called God his father. He understood who he was. Now, I think it's proper, though, to say that Jesus, as a boy, learned and came to a growing understanding of his messianic calling by reading the scriptures. He came to a better understanding of what he had to do in order for men to be saved as he read the Old Testament. B.B. Uh, Warfield has said concerning the development of Jesus, there are no, no human traits lacking to the picture that is drawn of him. He was open to temptation. He was conscious of the dependence on God. He was a man of prayer. He knew a will within him that might conceivably be opposed to the will of God. He exercised faith. Think Stop there. Jesus Christ exercised faith. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And here is a great thing to remember in our Christology. 
it was not merely the mind of a man that was in him, but the heart of a man as well, and the spirit of a man. In a word, he was all that a man, a man without error and sin is, and must be conceived to have grown as it is proper for a man to grow. And hear this, not only during his youth, but continuously through his life, not alone in knowledge, but in wisdom, and not alone in wisdom, but in reverence and charity, in moral strength and in beauty of holiness alike. Indeed, we find it insufficient to say, as the writer whom we have just quoted says, St. Luke places no limit to the statement that he increased in wisdom. And it seems, therefore, to be allowable to believe that he continued until the great it is finished on the cross. This quote really encapsulates the growth and development of Jesus. And what B.B. Warfield is saying is this, is when Jesus Christ was a boy, he learned and he grew and he developed. And then when he, when he, when he became an adult, we aren't to think that he stopped learning. We aren't to think that Jesus at age 30 no longer required any learning. No longer was learning how to obey. No longer was learning things about himself. We aren't to think that Jesus stopped learning once he grew to adulthood, but from womb to tomb, Jesus continued to lo- learn and grow in development. And how did he do that? He did that by the equipping of the Holy Spirit. Now hear me, saints, when I say Jesus Christ learned and grew, even up to those words, it is finished. He doesn't learn according to his divine nature. Okay? Don't think that, well, Jesus, he's learning, but he's God. He knows all things. He knows all things according to his divine nature. But according to his human nature, he's finite. He doesn't know all things. So in order for him to be truly human, he must grow just as we grow. He must do and he must develop just as we do and develop. I don't know about you, but I think that's fascinating about Jesus that he grew, he learned obedience, he learned about himself by reading the Old Testament. Um, if anything, that is much cooler to know than what his favorite color was and what, what his favorite uh, thing to do was as a boy. Let me give this second reason quickly. <clears throat> uh, in Luke chapter, in Luke 2, verse 39 to 50, uh, 52, tell, tells us about the early life of Christ. What is it telling us? It's telling us that he was truly sinless that he was truly a human and that he was truly sinless, okay? After Jesus' parents find him in the temple, Luke 2, verses 21 to 22, or 51 to 52 say this, and he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think these verses really tell us about the sinless nature of Jesus as a young boy, do they not? When the, uh, Jesus' parents find them in the temple, Jesus didn't throw a fit. We don't, we don't hear any record of him going to the ground, you know, hitting the pounding of the ground, saying, no, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. We don't read any of that. What do we read? It says that he was submissive to them. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, was submissive to his parents. Jesus, at this point, didn't disobey his parents when he was caught in the temple. And because of this, 
I think this paints for us a beautiful picture of the early life of Jesus that I believe this wasn't the first time that he obeyed his parents. And this wasn't the first time or the last time that he would obey someone who was of higher authority than him. But this is giving us a clear picture of the entirety of the young life of Jesus. He lived a life of submission to those who were above him. His parents, those who were of, uh, who were older than him. And because of this, he grew in favor with God. Because of his obedience to men, he grew in favor with God and men. This favor and love from the Father to the Son continued to progress as Jesus grew in stature. And this is uh, more, and none of this, and this is more evident uh, at Jesus' baptism. We see this clearly at Jesus' baptism where the heavens open up. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This obedience of Jesus in his early life, we see it um, in Matthew three seventeen, where the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The father could not say that about his son unless his son truly lived a life of obedience and submission. The father delighted in his son, for Jesus learned what pleased his father. He read the scriptures and he read what pleased God. And he was obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death. So saints, why do we need to know about the name of Christ and the name of Jesus and the early life of Jesus? Because it sets us up now for that great event that will happen when he's age 30, where we record or the Bible records where John sees this man coming and he says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. The early life of Jesus sets us up for that uh, inauguration of his public ministry. But also the name of Jesus Christ says to us and shouts to the world that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only Savior. Just as we read in our question two of our catechism, that it is foolish to believe that there is no God. It is also foolish to believe that there are other saviors other than Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one and only savior. And what we read in closing in Philippians 2 is because of this great salvation and what Christ has done on our behalf and his obedience to the Father from womb to tomb, what happens? He's given a name that is above every name. A name that makes evil men tremble and that makes demons shudder. A name that all men will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.